Hi, I'm Jo Litson. Welcome to The Thinking Traveller, a series that draws on the passions, expertise and knowledge of Academy Travel's tour leaders to bring a wealth of insight to your travels, one topic at a time. It's known as the Guggenheim Effect, the extraordinary impact that the Guggenheim Museum Bilbao had in revitalising the northern Spanish city. Initially, the idea for an economic regeneration plan that included a cultural icon as its centrepiece generated so much controversy and opposition that the museum nearly didn't happen. But Canadian-American architect Frank Geary understood exactly what was needed, and his dazzling titanium-plated museum transformed the Basque city into an international arts destination. Dr. Jenny Ride joins us today to explain why Bilbao is, as she puts it, a phoenix rising from the ashes. Jenny is a linguist and art historian, with a PhD focusing on tourism, heritage and Renaissance studies. Passionate about art, design and architecture, both ancient and modern, she has over 15 years' experience leading tours to Spain, Italy and Portugal. Lovely Thank to have you. you here again. It's lovely to be here. Thank I you gather both. you've just come back from Italy, four months in yes, Italy. Yes, four months in Italy in the so-called red zone. So in lockdown with my daughter, her new baby and her three-year-old. So that was a very interesting experience and actually fantastic to have that quality time with them as well. So you couldn't go out though? Couldn't go out much, no. Fortunately, they have a house so in a garden, so we were able to um, at least go into a garden rather than being in an apartment and uh, in a small town, so we were quite safe. But it was a very interesting experience. Yeah, I bet it was. Mm. Anyway, we're going to look to Spain today. Indeed. So can you tell us why do you describe Bilbao as a phoenix rising from the ashes? Well, I think it's a bit of a then and now scenario, really, because um, it was an industrial city that went into decline and then kind of transformed itself into a refined city of services and art and culture, um, becomes a world-class tourist destination. Where Where is it for people who don't know? Well, it's located in northern Spain. It's um, about 16 kilometres inland from the Bay of Biscay on the Cantabrian Sea, so on the River Nervion, which is um, about a 70-kilometre river that starts inland on the border of Castilla Leon, um, the region, and then um, has its mouth, its estuary in, um, in the Bay of Biscay. And it's um, always been a port city, right? All that 16 kilometres was actually part of the port um, city. So it's part of Basque country. It's part of the, yeah, it's part of the Basque country, which is a really distinctive area. And it's a, di- it's a difficult term to use because it means a lot of different things. It's like, a, it's a very complex geopolitical area. It's actually formed of seven provinces, four of which are in Spain and three of which are in, in France, the south of France. And of the four in Spain, three of them are actually part of the Basque region. So there's the Basque land or Basque country, which is in Basque language, the Euskal Herria, and then the Basque region, which is an autonomous um, region within Spain, which is formed of three provinces. And Bilbao is the capital of one of those provinces, um, Vizcaya. So can you tell us a little bit about the history of the city? 
Well, the city is, it dates really, I suppose, to the 13th century. So prior to that, it was a trading and uh, fishing town. And then in the 14th century, it was founded by a gentleman called Diego Lopez de Aro, whose statue is actually in the centre of the city and continued with trading um, and also with uh, fishing. But then iron deposits were discovered in the, in the area and so it became really important to, uh, trade for iron. And in the 19th century, more iron ore deposits were cl- found close to Bilbao and then in the 19th century uh, began this um, big push towards um, industrialisation. And then in the 19th and 20th century, it became the most industrialised city in Spain after, after Barcelona really, with oil refineries, chemical factories and steel production. It was caught up in the Spanish Civil War. It was, but it was actually really um, important to Franco because during the war there were the steel mills which were producing steel for his weapons. So it was very important for him to have that as a, as a centre. It also needed a huge engineering project to desilt the river because, as I said, the port was right up that 16 kilometres and so large ships had to get right up to, to Bilbao itself, um, the city, and so marshes were drained and some of the sandbanks were removed so the, and the meanders were straightened so that the river could function properly as a, as a, a proper port city. Why was it bombed then? Uh, was this the nationalists actually dropped the bombs on the city and destroyed the bridges? Yes, yes, indeed, yeah. So that then led to some form of urban renewal, I guess, in the wake of that. In the wake of that, yes. Um, Very important because it's a big steel industry in the the city, so as a port it really needed to continue to function as this uh, wealthy, industrialised city. So when did the... Um, you know, those industries start to wane because there did uh, come a point, didn't there? Yes, in the 1970s was an economic recession and then in the 1980s uh, major international uh, manufacturing companies deserted the city and there was a really serious economic um, de- uh, crisis and a decline. And you'd have to think also that Bilbao, okay, it was a very wealthy city but it was also very poor as well. So there was a huge difference between those who had and those who had not. So the whole of that area, so I'm talking about the 17 kilometres to the port, often there were just um, um, you know migrants coming into work who were living in shacks on the waterside. You have to think of it as a, a really polluted industrial city with waste dumps and um, a very polluted river. So it was a very grey um, city. If you look at old photos, you see all of the the smoke pouring out of the mills and the factories, and it was a very unpleasant industrial city to live in. So the wealthy lived on the coast, right on the coast at their mouth. And if you visit Getxo, which is city on one of the two cities on either side of the mouth of that river, you can still see all of the really beautiful houses that were built by the wealthy industrialists who lived there. So that migration had grown because of the factories and the, the factories, industrialization. Yes. yes, indeed. Coming yeah. from south of the southern Spain, you know, poorer southern Spain, moving up into a very wealthy city which where they could find employment. So mm. suddenly those industries aren't making the same money anymore. You've got all these people. So what does the city do? It needs to do something, well, doesn't it? Well, uh, one of the triggers, so the trigger for the, what the, the main trigger was the economic recession, but another tr- massive tr- trigger was in 1983 there was a flood which destroyed 
many parts of the banks of the river and also uh, brought to light many of the serious drainage problems and um, sanitary issues for the city. So the uh, government decided that they needed to do something something about it. So that was one of the drivers, I think, for the urban renewal of this um, this city. Can you tell us about the plan that they came up with? Because it was quite a bold, brave plan, really, wasn't it? Yeah, it started a lot long before they even had thought about the museum, though the Guggenheim being built. But they set up some regeneration agencies, what were called the Bilbao Metropoli and also the Bilbao Ria, so they were the river and also to clean up the industrial plants and clean up the river itself. So they were really inspired initiatives and a lot of money was poured into the um, into into those projects. So all of the old industrial complexes along the river banks were all torn down and there was a billion euro project really to to clean up up the the river and we know that it's really clean now because they have a diving competition people diving off the Puente de la Salve, which is the large bridge close to the Guggenheim. Um, each year they have this, these diving competitions. And so, yeah, and you can swim in the river now. So you before, come out alive. Yeah, absolutely, you come out alive, <laughs> whereas um, really there were serious issues with the disease um, prior to this cleanup. So then the port itself was recreated, so they moved all of the, the port activity because also large ships could not come up the river any longer to, to the, the mouth of the river. So that's where there's a, a really big um, shipbuilding industry there now and also a new big port for cruise ships to come in because lots of people are coming into wanting to, to come to Bilbao for its art and culture. Then there was they decided they needed to develop a better transport system to move goods from the city out to the port, port areas and from other parts of Vizcaya, the region. And then started to think about a better metro system as well. So employed uh, Norman Foster um, to to build that metro system, which is still ongoing. Actually, they're still adding adding to that, and then other other centres as well. And then they had this idea that they needed basically needed a Sydney Opera House. The and idea was sort of quite controversial initially, wasn't it? It was controversial because the people thought, people of, of Bilbao thought that the money would be better spent in creating jobs, continuing in an industrial area to improve employment. And also they were worried about a museum, an American museum, sort of like flexing its kind of cultural imperialism, I suppose, in a city which they wanted to promote um, Basque art and, and, and sculpture and, and Basque culture. So that was uh, a big issue. And the other issue too was that there are many bombings by ETA, the um, terrorist organisation um, in Bilbao. So they were that was a significant obstacle really at the time, I think. And also the, the amount of money that was being going to be spent, where was that money going to come from and would it be successful? It was a huge amount of money, wasn't huge it? Huge amount of money, yeah. So it cost um, $89 million, but actually that they had budgeted a hundred, so it came in well under cost. And also they had to give $10 million to the Guggenheim, the Solomon Foundation, as a sort of part of the franchise, I yeah, guess. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So interestingly, one of the other criticisms or early criticisms of the of the project was that it was going to be very much an American project, you know, and a sort of um, cultural imperialism, American cultural imperialism. Um 
uh, but Geary pointed out that actually he was inspired by a Spanish artist's um, painting, though. So Pablo Picasso's accordionist during his Cubist period, which when you look at that painting, it looks very much uh, like the titanium tiles and the curves of the, of the, the building itself. So Did they approach a number of architects? There was or a competition. Just Frank oh, there was well, a competition. First of all, the, the the Bilbao government approached Thomas Crenn, who was the director of the Solomon Foundation, to see if they'd be interested in building a museum. So it just happened to be fortuitous because um, at that time Thomas Crenn was thinking, oh, we've got all of these, all of this artwork which we keep. Um, in storage, we can't possibly show it all. Wouldn't it be good if we could build other Guggenheims in other parts of the world? So, of course, they had the, the Guggenheim in Venice and they wanted to expand that, but they were having some issues with that, with um, the Guggenheim in Venice. And so they were quite interested when Bilbao approached. So the first approach was in 1991. And then the, when the, the Guggenheim could see that or the foundation could see that they were, that Bilbao was really serious, and they actually had the money to do, to to put forward. Then they started to really um, get involved. So uh, Thomas Crean called in three architects, um, a Japanese architect called Arata Isozaka and Himmelblau architects in Germany. So there was a an Asian representative, a German representative, and then the American, um, Geary, because Crane was a friend of Geary's and seen some of his really interesting buildings in the States, particularly his own house. And so this competition was run and Geary won because his his project was the most innovative. So what about the site? Because it wasn't the easiest site to build on, was it? Well... It wasn't that it wasn't an easy site to build on. I think it was it's positioned close to the to the riverbank, so they actually had to pl- place a lot of clay tiles in order to shore up the, the subsoil. And actually, Geary wanted the position of it to be lower than the rest of the city, so that it wouldn't would ma- marry with the rest of the the heights of the um, the building. I guess so. I think it's about sixteen meters below the building, and it. It means that you walk down to it, which is unusual because usually in most museums you walk up a flight of steps into yeah. this kind of like um, into the foyer. But here you walk down and that's uh, a really interesting approach, I think. And he actually wanted that to be, wanted it to be like that so that there was this marriage between the building itself and the rest of the, the city that it wasn't too much too high. Mm. And yet he had a huge atrium, has a huge atrium. The atrium, yes, it's uh, like a tower. He calls it like a, it's like a flower. So you walk in and it's like this big kind of a welcome space. And so you just get a feeling for the three floors of the building and you get the feeling of the light and also the materials, particularly not so much the titanium or external, but the building uh, you can see, you see the the limestone that was and the glass, and then you have this whole feeling that you're right in the centre of the building, and you can look up and see the the other galleries because the the museum is organised around a series of of, of circular um, stair stairwells and lift towers and so forth. So you get this wonderful feeling of soaring 
space just to begin with. And you can step out from that atrium onto the river, it's uh, onto a waterway which is, looks out over the over the river, like a little terrace really with one single column right in the centre, which is actually quite spectacular as well. I mean, yeah. externally it's just ext- it's extraordinary, all those shapes and curves, the way he brought different angles mm. together. Uh, that was really interesting too because it's, it was a pioneering program, new computer program. It was actually a program called Katya, which is used in um, uh, air- aircraft design, so to, to get curves. And so he pioneered that. So very innovative uh, for its time. Its appearance, um, Geary wanted it to look like it married with the industrial uh, feel the industrial past of Bilbao. So it, it kind of looks a bit like a ship coming up the river, kind of looks like a bit like a fish because of the scales of the titanium on it. Yeah, very a very interesting um, fluid shape. It's, and, in fact, when you're inside it, it's actually just like a sculpture, like being inside, being actually inside a sculpture. When you're outside, it just looks like a sculptural, beautiful sculptural form. So what about the choice of the titanium? I know you say it fits the in industrial world that it's in, but it's so beautiful, isn't it? It's scaly and shiny and gorgeous. It's really interesting because they were not very happy when they were investigating materials to use. They had lots of different materials sent to the offices, and so they, this is in the, uh, back in the States still, um, they were... In, they were exploring using steel, but they were worried about the um, light in Bilbao because it can be very grey and boring. And someone had sent them some titanium, so they nailed it to a lamppost outside in the in the yard. And so, and then it was it happened to be a very grey, overcast day, but the titanium glowed with this golden light. So they said, "Yes, we've got to use the t- titanium." And that was very fortuitous too, because the price of titanium suddenly came down in the period that they wanted it. So they decided to cover it in the titanium. Um, these scales there are actually forty three thousand panels of titanium uh, on this building. And that was also um, a, a force to be contended with in, t- in terms of constructing the building because because of the shape of the curves, there were no cranes that could actually get up into some parts of the building in order to be able to place the titanium um, tiles on. So they had to use mountaineers to cl- climb up abseil, up and down, to, to fit these um, titanium um, tiles. And they're not fitted flat they're fitted they're bolted in the center so they're only 0.3 millimeters in depth they're very very thin like paper thin and so they're bolted in the center and so they kind of flutter so that you get this the shape the you see this like fish scales and so they move with the light and the wind you didn't want it to be just a fixed piece i mean it became such a tourist hotspot i mean it's so interesting to see how art attracts people, art can put a city on the the world Mm. map. Yes, well, actually, it's not so much the art, it's actually the building itself, which is the piece of art. It's like a piece of sculpture. It has a very small collection itself, and it's uh, rather mirroring what happened to the Guggenheim in New York, which has also been criticised because it's it's the building itself, which is the work of art, and it's not, the collection itself is not 
seen to be quite so important. And in fact, the Guggenheim has followed suit and has to borrow from the the mother gallery um, for temporary exhibitions. Unfortunately, also one of the criticisms from the Basque people is that there is very little Basque work um, in in the collection. So, um, and my impression from people who visit is just that it's a fabulous building to visit, to go inside, but disappointing for, for the actual collections unless they have some spectacular um, temporary exhibition on when, the, when they visit. Um, the best um, gallery probably in the, in the, in the uh, museum for me and also actually I was reading for the director of the gallery himself is the Richard Serra Gallery, which is when you look at the building, there's a long gallery which is was purpose-built to hold these really heavy cork and steel sculpture. It's called The Matter of Time, incorporating another one of Richard Serra's sculptures um, in cork and steel, which they're really spectacular sculptures and also interesting because they also marry with the theme of the industrial city in their materials. Are there other galleries that do exhibit a lot of um, Basque artists? Yes, um, in my view, the the best um, art gallery in Bilbao is the Belles Artes, which is the Fine Arts Museum, which has is considered to be one of the best galleries in Spain. It has about 10,000 works and that has a really significant collection of Basque sculptures and fabulous paintings from Basque artists. So that's a that's quite close to the Guggenheim actually. Both of them are really worth a visit from from different perspectives. So mm. do, so do you know how many people visit? I mean Prior to the coronavirus, of course, but it was sort of a million a year or something. It's a million a year. So it it opened in uh, 1997 and 20 million people have come through since 1997. So they do, they calculated when they were doing all of the uh, budget for it that they would need 400,000 people a year to be able to finance it or to pay for it. And in fact, they get a million a year or they before the crisis, of course. So far exceeded that. So with that, they have contributed at the last count, I think at the last um, figures that I was reading, 4.3 billion euros to the GDP of the Basque region. And it's also created 69, 695 million euros to um, in additional tax revenue from, you know, the services that, you know, hotels and restaurants and so forth. Yes, because there's that incredible flow-on effect. Uh, Other flow-on effects have been restoration work of the old city. Um, Also, many of the modern Easter houses have been um, improved. The uh, wine, uh, old wine warehouse, the Alhondiga, um, has been was restored by Philippe Stark and made into a cultural centre, and Norman Foster is um, uh, was then also employed to to put a new wing on the Museum of Fine Arts, which um, to house the contemporary Basque collections. Um, interestingly, too, uh, in um, urban art and design, uh, fantastic um, urban equipment like tree grates, uh, design tree grates around um, trees on the pavement. The benches are, are, are art works in themselves, and as, uh, also lots of new hotels and bars and uh, nightclubs and so forth. So it's a very uh, dynamic city, and in particular, it is a centre of Michelin-starred restaurants. There are at least seventeen Michelin-starred restaurants, and Bilbao is an exceptional place to stay and enjoy the food. 
So a foodie's delight. Yeah, so, so there's plenty to, to see. Not j- I mean, obviously, everybody wants to go and see the Guggenheim Museum there, but a lot a lot else there on offer yeah, for tourists. Yeah, as, as I said, the, 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 the museum itself is just like a sculpture, but the Bilbao is full of open air. It's like an open air um, art museum, really. There's so many um, sculptures. Um, you can go just walking along the river and everywhere you go there's some fantastic piece of abstract sculpture or realistic sculpture, including parts of the old industrial um, city uh, manufacturing plants that they've kept, like a crane which they've made into its own sculpture, often figures of workers um, uh, along the the waterfront. They built a maritime museum, which is fantastic, a fantastic conference centre and a music hall with a sculpture by Dali in the in the pond outside. Um, many Basque sculptors have their work there. Everywhere you look, there's something that uh, takes your eye, I think. It's very interesting. Mm. Lovely. Thanks for your time, Jenny. That concludes today's episode for The Thinking Traveller, a series brought to you by Academy Travel. To stay up to date with the latest conversations in this series, you can subscribe at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you source your shows. For more information on Academy Travel's tour programme, to read other interesting articles written by their expert tour leaders, or to catch up with them in person at a public event around Australia, visit academytravel.com.au. Until next time, I'm Jo Litson. Thank you for your company.